This is episode 17 of the Rising Man podcast with Tom McGee. One love. everybody to the rising man podcast i am your host and the creator of this show jetty azuma and i want to give a special shout to everybody who's listening for the first time i'm so glad you decided to sit in especially on this episode it's a super special one to me and welcome back to all my risers out there appreciate you guys tuning in every single week getting the subscriptions up on the rise getting the downloads up on the rise we are growing fam we are growing out there in the world so thank you so much for giving so much love to this podcast and to this movement before i get into too much let me just give a little shameless plug to the Rising Man Facebook group. <laughs> we are on the rise. We are growing. Like I say, every week I get more and more requests from people wanting to invite their friends and other people who are just listening to the show and wanting to get involved with the Facebook group. So if you're not already a member, go to facebook.com slash group slash the rising man. Get yourself invited into the group today. And if you're already in there, invite some other men, invite some of your other brothers who would really benefit from being a part of these conversations. And if you're also alone by yourself out there, you know, you guys know this is a big passion of mine. The last thing I want to hear about is a man who is suffering in silence, who is out there, doesn't have support from any of the men in his life, trying to figure out how to do life all on his own. If I'm speaking to you right now, if this is you, I want you to stop everything you're doing, even pause this episode and send me a message on Facebook right away. Just look me up, Jetty Azuma on Facebook. I respond to all the messages that I get, or you can send me an email at jettyazuma at gmail.com. You will get a response from me because I do not want to hear about a man out there who's suffering by himself and can't figure out what to do next. So I mean that. Please reach out. I want to see if I can help you get to your next level. All right. All right. With that aside, you guys know this is the first episode in a series of four episodes that we are using to celebrate Father's Month. Yes, because we are a podcast for men, I decided that one day alone in the month of June is not enough to celebrate all the fathers out there. We're going to do it all month long. So (laughs) without further ado, for our first Father's Month episode, I am pleased to bring onto the show a very special man by the name of Tom McGee. Tom is a clinical psychotherapist with nearly 40 years of clinical practice. He also has decades, I mean decades of experience in men's healing work, specifically facilitating men's circles and retreats. He is a father to two daughters. He also happens to be my father-in-law, which is an amazing honor to be a son to this wonderful man. And Tom is just an overall mountain of a man. I don't even really need to say too much more about him. I'll let you guys find out by listening to the wisdom that he brings to the table and especially this conversation. It was a powerful one. In this episode, we dissected the differences between boys and men. You guys know I always ask that question at the top of my show, and Tom really brought the heat on this question, really picked it apart. So amazing to just get that right off the bat. We really dove into what is a wounded boy and how are these boys and men who are wounded, how are they showing up in our society right now? And we spoke about what can what can we as a community do to support our boys and men better than we already are. Tom shared a bit about what it's like being a father to daughters and the joys of grandfatherhood. He is a grandfather to my little boy who's gonna be turning three soon here. And he also spoke about something that really hit home for me, being fully present with your children and how he found has found ways to do that, raising his girls and now helping raise his grandson. So 
Really special episode for me. Really, you guys, I, I get to experience this man on a regular basis. I'm so glad that I get to bring his wisdom to the table for all of you. I'll leave it at that. Without further ado, Tom McGee. All right, Tom, welcome to the Rising Man podcast. So grateful to have you joining us here today, man. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. For those of you, I, I already mentioned in the intro, but um, Tom is my father-in-law and, and we have a very special relationship. Grateful to be married to his wonderful daughter, Carrie, and to have been welcomed into the McGee family <laughs> so warmly. And it's really great to have you on the show here because the work that I do is very much inspired by the work that you do and the generation of men that you have worked side by side with. It's really great to bridge the gap. Oh, that's great for me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is going to be the first interview in a series of interviews with fathers for the month of June to celebrate fatherhood. So really looking forward to capturing your perspective on fatherhood and what you've learned for all of the prospective fathers, current fathers, future fathers out there. All right. Sounds good. So let's jump in. I know you're excited to answer this question. <laughs> what is the difference between a boy and a man? Yeah, I am excited to answer that one because as you know, this has been a central question in my work over the last several years. And my partner in retreats, Richard Palmer, and I are writing a book on this question. So one of the overarching thing is different between a boy and a man is the boy is more self-referenced. In other words, what happens in the world is more about him. And this is not like your extreme form of narcissism. This is just kind of natural expected kind of self-centeredness that we're all born with. You know, when we're babies, we're just trying to survive in the world and we do that in any way we can. And it takes time and it takes orient in order to develop into a man. And so the boy is more about how does it affect him? What is he experiencing? What does it mean for him? Whatever is happening, that's his primary concern. It takes time and growth and work to move from that toward the man who is more other referenced. In other words, the boy is thinking, what about me? And the man is thinking, how are the salmon doing? What is my woman up to? How is she feeling? What about all my family, are they okay? And what about all the people in the world? How are they doing? And what's happening with them? And how can I be of service to them? Mm -hmm. That's a basic difference. And then along with that, and kind of corollary to that are all these other things. Like a man is going to be more likely to be accountable and be responsible. He's more likely to be concerned about presence. Is he really present in a situation? Is he able to exercise restraint and patience? and containment of his feelings when it's necessary. And is he also able to hold the tension of opposites? And this is, this is a big one because we tend to want to flip-flop to one thing or another when we're faced with a dilemma or a hard decision or anything where there's conflict. And to hold that tension and not have to jump in reactively and either make a decision or take an action without contemplation, without reflection, without exercising consciousness about what he's doing. Also, a man is willing to bring love and deep affection into the world. And this is part of that other centeredness that comes, it comes along with that. Being able to, despite all of the pain and suffering he might have gone through, is going through, have the will and the forbearance to bring love to others and affection to others. In that sense, also a man is gift-oriented. 
so that he's looking at how can he give his gifts? How can he give gifts to others? How can he be of service? And this also goes right into empowering women, which I feel is a very important part of being a man. And then another thing is a man needs to be in a constant conversation with the life of the soul to be in touch with his soul and the soul of the universe and to have a spiritual side that he's always developing and and exercising. And along with that also is a man must be willing to protect and bless the sacred. I feel this is very important that we need to not only acknowledge the sacred and see how it works in our lives and in the lives of others, but to protect and bless what is sacred. And that's something that's needed so much in our world today because there's a lot of trashing of what's going on uh, with the sacred in our world. And and just for people who may not relate to that terminology, what, what would you define the sacred as? Oh, that's a tough question. I think we all have to define what that is for ourselves. I mean, for me, it, it's partly nature, having a healthy relationship to nature. And to me, being in a forest or on a mountain or a desert or in the ocean, those are all experiences of the sacred. So those places need to be held sacred. But for me, I can also access that in my backyard. And I do every morning as part of my daily sacred practice to access that sense of the other life in the world besides the humans. That's an important part of it. But there's also kind of a sense of what is a sacred moment. Like we could even say right now we're having a sacred moment because we're having this conversation. Intimacy between two people, which is, that's another thing that a man is able to do and a boy often struggles with. Mm. Anything that requires reverence or ultimate respect, I think. And and we all have to define what that is for ourselves. Mm. I resonate so deeply with with all of the distinctions that you made. And the, the first thing that I love is how robust of an answer that is. I, clearly, you have centered your life's work around at least this question. I'm sure many others, too. But it's it's been big for you. And um, I haven't yet had somebody dissect that question so so definitively. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, and sure. um, it's clear that I'm sure many men who are listening to that uh, especially if they're younger men like myself in their 20s, 30s, maybe even 40s, may feel like, wow, there are many elements of that distinction between a boy and a man that I have not yet lived into. Mm-hmm. And so I know there's a temptation a lot of the time to say, this is a boy and this is a man. Right. And I've chosen to actually say, well, there's a there's a long line between boy and man called becoming man. Right. So maybe, maybe you can give your perspective <laughs> on that so the men out there don't feel yeah. <laughs> lesser. Well, just to let you know, I'm still working on it myself. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> After 67 years. Yes, yes. So uh, it's a never-ending process. And you're right. It's a long continuum. And I don't believe that there's any man that that doesn't have some aspect of this to grow into, and there's always more to grow into. So this is not at all meant to create a sense of deficiency in anybody, but to really offer possibility and potential and all kinds of room for exploration and growth. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I don't believe that we ever fully leave the boy behind either. That boy is with us. He's in us. And there is a really wonderful, healthy part of the boy that we need to be in touch with, the exuberant boy, the one who can be in awe and wonder and experience the world with innocence and fresh eyes. And that's that's very important not to leave behind. Mm, I love that. And I want to 
segue into that discussion a little bit because I know um, I've been to a couple of your retreats. I've had the pleasure of going to them and they're amazing. Anybody who's in the Southern California area should definitely look into Tom's work. Um, the one that well, or anywhere else. or anywhere else, yeah, anywhere <laughs> that you might be might be doing your work. Um, yeah. and, you know, healing the boy and strengthening the man. Uh, when I when I heard that that was the title of the retreat, I said, "Whoa, there's something deep." there for me. So uh, can you speak a little bit about the wounded boy and what are some of the implications of having a wounded boy and having not tended to or acknowledged that wounded part of ourselves? I believe we all have that in us too. And that that wounded boy tends to be the one who is more self-referenced and absorbed with his own pain. And, and we all go into that sometimes. Um, it's part of life. A wounded boy is often really wrapped up in shame, feeling deficient, inferior, like he doesn't belong, like he doesn't deserve love, that he's not worthy. He's often driven by fear and anxiety, sometimes in part about what other people will think of him, but also maybe riddled with his own doubts about himself and his ability to make his way in the world. So I also resonate with that description. I have a very clear recollection of what it's like to have a wounded part, a wounded boy living inside of me. Uh, what are some of the things that you propose we can begin to do? Even if let's let's start with someone who hasn't even acknowledged or recognized that they have that wounded part of themselves, and then yeah. walk us forward into the healthy boy. He needs some help. One of the aspects of the wounded boy is he won't access help. So that is a big. That's like the first hurdle, being able to acknowledge these wounds, to be able to feel them fully in the presence of another who cares and maybe knows something about these wounds. And that can ha happen through therapy, through coaching, through men's groups. It can happen a whole number of ways. Some people experience it for the first time in 12-step groups, but he has to acknowledge to himself that he is wounded and that he needs help. And that can take decades to get just to there. And some men never do get there. But so that's the beginning. And then once he begins to open himself up to help, then he has to be able to gradually build trust in those around him. And if he's lucky, he will find a community of brothers who are willing to help him and support him in his journey. And I think that's an essential part of it. I think it's it's really important. Mm. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm glad that we spoke about how it's a never-ending journey because there's always, yeah. once you begin the process of self-examination, self-reflection, and then mm -hmm. choosing to implement action and consciousness around how you're being and how you're showing up in the world, that's there's always another level. <laughs> there's always another, yeah. another place there's to dig more. in. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... This question came up in my mind as you were describing the wounded boy. I can remember where, you know, in my early 20s, I was still very much living in my boy and different elements of my boy, definitely wounded elements, but also some of, still some of that pure, lighthearted, exuberant boy. And then for me, at least, when I became, when I, when I married Carrie and we got pregnant three months after we got married, something shifted in me and I really dug more deeply into that man part of myself. And, and mm -hmm. I, I, looking back on it, I recognized that I let go of the boy. I, I forgot about my boy for a long time and mm -hmm. didn't acknowledge that part of myself for uh. the sake of learning how to be a provider and stepping into what I yeah. felt were man shoes, husband shoes, father shoes. So right. um, have you, as a man who's been on the journey longer than I, have you ever lost sight of your boy? And, and what has that experience been like for you? I wouldn't say it's been like a 
permanent or long-term thing at any point, but I certainly lose sight of him all the time. I still do, especially when I'm faced with tasks and things that I must accomplish or take care of. And I think in a way that's, that's helpful because especially like what you were describing when you're in your twenties, I had a similar kind of experience where I was all about having fun and a very hedonistic lifestyle. And I wanted love And so that brought me into my marriage and then gradually taking on the responsibility of being a husband and then a father, developing a career. So through my 20s, I worked very hard at that. And and I kind of fooled myself into thinking, okay, I'm a man now. You know, I I got it down. I'm doing all this stuff. You know, I got my career going. I'm married. I'm having children. I'm buying a house. Yeah, I got all the hallmarks, you know, and that feels good. And there is an aspect to all those things that help to bring you into manhood because they require responsibility. I had to put aside my own pleasure in order to take care of these things. And so there was a lot of growth in that. In that period also, though, it was interesting as I reflect on it, there was along with that sense of, okay, I'm a man now, came this arrogance. Like, okay, I'm getting it down. And I came into my career pretty early. Most of my coworkers were older than me. And and I had this kind of grandiose belief in myself that was not exactly accurate. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't unfounded because I was doing a good job and learning my career and all that, but I it was it was a little bit off. And I think that's another side of the wounded boy that isn't as obvious is that sometimes this grandiosity or this arrogance can come through. And it it's not true self-confidence. It's more like the flip side of woundedness and shame. Mm. It's what we can sometimes reach toward in order to get out of it. <laughs> well, I can, I can, I'm nodding my head because I can definitely <laughs> relate to to that experience. And um, it's it's that for me, it was that proud part of yes, I'm I'm putting food on the table for my family, and I'm the sole provider. Right. And uh, I, I definitely got caught up in that myself for a period of time, and have had to. Um, examine my way out of it and, and choose my way out of it. Right. So, and I, I know, I know a lot of other men experience something like that too. Oh yeah. It's, it's classic. It's typical. And the danger in it is that, I mean, I've seen so many times, so many men say to me in their forties or whenever they're, they hit the wall and their family and marriage are falling apart. I don't know what went wrong. I did everything right. I put food on the table. I brought home my paycheck and gave it to her. I don't know what else she wants. You know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. This is what a man does, right? Mm -hmm. But there's so much more that a man needs to do than work and bring home a paycheck. Yeah, yeah. And and thinking about that a lot, because I've thought about that a lot, like where what happens in those situations, I think that intentionality is so imperative. And I know that for me, at least in my definition of a boy, a boy is someone who chooses their actions based on validation from external sources. So I'm going to act on behalf of... What am I going to get from, am I going to get love? Am I going to get respect and appreciation from outside versus choosing what is going to valid, like validating myself in my own experience? So is that something that you see come up a lot? Oh, definitely. And that, this is something that I'm working on more and more. And that, because that is such a setup for shame, Mm. because as soon as you rely on those external sources for your validation, they're not going to always validate you. And they are when you're when you're relying on that for your validation. If you're not validated, then shame rushes in. 
and it takes over and you feel like horrible. Yeah. The shame, the shame vortex is a tricky one. I know it's, it, and it's very sneaky too. Cause some people I'll yeah. speak on my own experience. Um, I won't even recognize that I've done something for validation until it's like, Oh, Oh, and my, usually it's getting reflected back to me by my men's team or, uh-huh. or someone that I trust yeah. and saying, Hey, uh-huh. Why, why were you looking for someone else to validate you and what you were doing? Yeah, this is one of the aspects that uh, Richard and I are going into a lot now. What are some of the more subtle aspects of shame that we don't necessarily recognize all the time? Let's talk about that a little bit. <laughs> what, are, what are some of the things you're discovering? What I was just talking about is one of them, that looking for external validation. And the other is also what we mentioned just a moment ago about reaching into that grandiosity and arrogance as a defense against shame. And, and what's so insidious about that is you don't, you're not aware of the shame because you, you know, you're reaching towards this validation, towards this grandiose version of yourself. And shame just is totally out of awareness at that point. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the shame that we all carry from childhood too. Situations where we might have been humiliated or just felt we were not good enough for some reason. And that can come from parents, peers, it can come from teachers or coaches, it can come all over the place. And especially when it's coming from adults, you know, they may be giving you the impression that they are really just guiding you and trying to make you grow up. And they're not even aware that they may be instilling some shame in you. Yeah. And I've, I've found on my own journey with examining the, where I, the places where I have shame and why that comes up for me, it's usually coming from a place of lacking self-love and lacking self-forgiveness that, yeah, that, mm-hmm. that thing happened in, in my past or, or even today. I made that choice today and, nah. and it didn't work out the way I wanted it to. I didn't show up the way that I would have liked to. And I'm ashamed of that yes. because I don't love myself or I don't acknowledge that I'm a human and that I'm, I'm imperfect and that those things happen. It's, and that's a big one that comes up. Yeah, it is. And that's why self-compassion is such an important thing to learn because that's a good antidote to shame. Mm. Yeah. Another thing that came up in this, in this conversation, I'm thinking about, because the, there is some subtlety to, to the shame and, and validation seeking. I know uh, one of the indicators for me is, for example, if, if, if Carrie asked me to pick up something from the store, or she didn't even ask me to pick up something from the store, but I said, hey, I bet she would really like this. So I grab it, mm-hmm. I bring it home, and, and she says something innocent like, oh, how nice, but I really like the other one. And I have an instant feeling of like, I did something wrong, or I didn't get mm-hmm. the response that I wanted, and it's I shut down. Yeah. It's not good enough. Right. That's that's like a, that's an indicator. And I, I wouldn't normally recognize that as, as shame or that I was looking for it, mm-hmm. but that's something that other people who are listening may be able to relate to is that response that comes up in the body. Yeah. And the, and the thing, the hallmark of shame is not that I did something wrong, but I am wrong. I am something that's bad, unworthy, deficient, whatever. So when you have that sense of, I am this thing, you know that shame, this awful thing, you know that shame is is present. Mm-hmm. And most of this is is relevant for for ordinary men out there in the world who are who are living the normal ups and downs of of a man's journey. Um, but it made me think about what about some of the men who have done something very very I don't want to say wrong, but something very destructive. You know, they've they've really hurt somebody yeah. violently or et cetera. Um, what what are your thoughts or opinions on shame and how it comes up for those men? Well, shame may or may not come up for those men. (laughs) But I've been reading Brene Brown 
recently. She's done a lot of work on shame and vulnerability, and she's got a couple of great TED Talks and some really good books. And she distinguishes between shame and guilt. And guilt is when you've done something wrong and you know it, and maybe you regret it or you have remorse or whatever, but you're still a good person who did something wrong. Hmm. Shame is, I am wrong. I am horrible. I am just, you know, like worthless and, you know, scum. Somebody who like murdered somebody or raped somebody could feel either of those or may not feel it at all. I mean, it's kind of more scary when they, they don't feel it at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But so it, it depends on the person, but there is a distinction that's important, I think, between guilt and shame, because we all do things that are wrong and we all make mistakes. So it's important as a man, I believe, when you do something wrong to acknowledge it, even feel remorse for it. The tricky part is to experience the appropriate amount of guilt that matches whatever the crime is and not to go overboard or dismiss it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a razor's edge that, you know, is not easy to achieve. And the guilt can can flood into shame, which usually isn't that useful because what happens with, with when it goes into shame is then the person is feeling so much pain with the shame that they'll do almost anything to get out of it which can bring other things that, you know, are not desirable. And I've kind of associated that distinction for shame with the boyish behavior, more of that wounded boy who's looking for the comfort of someone else to come along and say, hey, it wasn't that bad. You know, like, don't be so hard on yourself. It's yeah. like a, almost like a uh -huh. subtle attention seeking tactic. Uh-huh. Yeah. And just because this is the direction the conversation is gravitating, there's so much happening right now with young men or boys, we can call them, going out in the, in the world and, and going into schools. We've had so many headlines in the news lately with school shootings. So I just wanted to get a little bit of your opinion on what might be happening for some of those boys. I know we can't paint a broad stroke, but what, what, are, you, what are you observing? Just from the some of the, I mean, I, I don't like to immerse myself in those things just because they're, they're so deadly to the soul to get you know, wrapped up in, but I, I do read newspaper accounts and I, I let in some of the news about it. And especially with these, you know, 17 and 18 year olds who are going into their school and shooting people. In fact, I was reading about that last one in Texas and he was rejected by this girl that he was infatuated with. He was put down by her in front of a whole class, which that is a classic shaming. And maybe that's what she needed to do because apparently he was stalking her. Maybe she didn't know what else to do, but that was a blatant shaming that he experienced. And it was resulted in a rebound of, you know, all this killing. So I'm not saying that that's the case in all, every single one, but it seemed pretty clearly that that's what was going on with that one. And I think there's there's some others too. These guys that are, they call themselves the incels, you know, the involuntary celibates. I don't know if you've heard of those, no, but these are guys that they have like a whole internet community of guys that have been constantly rejected by women who are attracted by the kind of alt-right anti-feminist, women-hating posture. And one of the things that unites them is that they are constantly rejected by women mm. and feel ashamed by that. Mm. 
they wouldn't use those words maybe, but that's what, what they describe is that they've been put down and, and they experience this shame of not being able to be the handsome guy with the beautiful woman. And there's a lot of envy and jealousy. And, and I think shame is the underpinning of that also. And I know that this is such a sensitive topic because wherever there's loss, especially devastating or tragic loss, there are so many people who feel the ripples of those emotions. And so um, I definitely feel for the people who were, I hate using the word victim, but the people who were subjects to this type of criminal activity. Um, And, you know, I also try to stay away from the media myself, but in my own fascination with this phenomenon, I've been looking in more deeply and, and recognizing how little we examine the offender, the person, the, the propagator, the person who subject, who created this violence on other people. And I've also been asking this question, what, where did we fail those people? Where did we fail that boy? Where did we fail that man? Mm. Um, yeah. And I know that a lot of people don't want to feel any type of empathy for that part of the equation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're angry and they just want to sit, go right into how can we prevent this? How can we stop it from happening. And, and you're right, there isn't uh, much of an attempt to understand, even though there is some information out there, but um, people are hurt and angry, understandably. Yeah. And, and just to kind of put a, a bow on this, on, on this part of the conversation, what, what do you think, in your opinion, is something that we as a society can be doing more of to prevent this, uh, apart from like gun control and all those other things that everybody else right. is proposing? Yeah. Right. I don't think there, it's not a short-term solution, you know, as you're implying. Those shootings are just one symptom of many that we're seeing with boys and men. And uh, you've, you know, commented a lot of, on this in your work as well, how boys are not having their needs addressed in the basic institutions, in schools, even families, uh, churches. Their, their needs are not getting met. And, and they... <sighs> Part of it is our culture, which tells a boy the way you can be a man is to be independent and not need anybody. And that's exactly the wrong message. Because in order to be a man, to be a boy growing into a man, you need brothers and you need community. And that's that's what we need to create more of. That's what you and I are working on. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, it's not going to stop the next shooting and it's not going to um, bear fruit immediately. It takes long-term work. And a lot of people need to be doing it. Yeah, I think that's really the take-home message, whether we're talking about preventing school shootings or preventing um, rapes or even even preventing cl- climate change, right? It's always a long-term solution that most right. people don't want to invest the time and resources in. So that's that's a good take-home from that. Um, and, you know, one, one last thing I've discovered in my assessment of the situation is Someone out there, I don't remember where I saw it, was doing research on all of the school shootings going all the way back to Columbine. And what they identified is that there was a couple of really common factors that stood out almost 100% of the time mm. is that whenever the, whenever the shooter was a male, there was either an absence of a father figure in the household, or if there was a father figure in the household, there was some sort of abuse or dysfunction between the father and son dynamic. And so uh-huh. circling back to the spirit of what we're discussing here in fatherhood, um, Tell me just a little bit. I know you have daughters, so you're not the father to a son, except me. You got me <laughs> and, 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 right. and, and and Brian, uh, uh, Justin. But what is the what is what are some of your opinions on the importance of a, of a healthy father son dynamic? Oh, well, it's very important. And there's no perfect father son dyad. <laughs> 
The thing is, I think, you know, we get so focused on the nuclear family that we expect everything from the nuclear family. So it's very important to have a good father-son dynamic, but it's not the only thing. And, you know, maybe I can go on to that in a little bit, but I mentioned that one of the things that is the hallmark of a man is presence. And that is what a boy needs from his father, his presence. You know, Robert Bly used to talk about how 300 years ago, a boy knew his father intimately because he would be working side by side with him in the fields, in the shop, whatever his father did. He started being with him while he was doing that. You know, this was before everybody was going to school and being sent away during the day. And boys spent a lot of time with their fathers. And so they knew their father intimately. There was a presence, even if they might have never had what we would call a meaningful conversation, but that boy absorbed his father's presence. And that gave him something for the rest of his life, good or bad or both. But we don't generally have that today. Boys are sent away to um, be in a classroom that is most often run by a woman when, when they're younger. And so they are missing a lot. And then on the other side, fathers over you know the last couple centuries have been so busy with their work that they leave all the child rearing to the mother. Mm. And, and so it's not so much even what kind of interaction they have, but that, that there is interaction. I mean, that's where we need to start. Mm-hmm. Of course, the quality of interaction is very important too, but there needs to be more interaction, I think, than there has been, especially in the last several decades. I agree. And uh, I've actually never looked at that perspective before, where pre before school, before the, you know, the modern school age and the educational systems mm-hmm. we have that, you know, boys would at a certain age start spending time with their fathers and their uncles and their older brothers and cousins, the males. Yes. And there was so much that was gained from that. And I know, I know that almost across the board, young boys and males are spending time with, like you said, female teachers or female authorities up until the time they, they graduate high school. And it's, that's, that's a really fascinating um, perspective to have and something I'm sure we could dig in very deeply to, but I actually want to, yeah. I want to start taking a turn towards um, your experience of fatherhood. Cause in the spirit of father's father's day, father's month, you've been a father to two amazing daughters and, um, I want to hear a little bit about your experience of being a father to daughters and um, okay. and how that has been a nice balance around all the other men's work that you do. Sure. First of all, I'd like to just start with when I was 17 years old and I was in love with my first girlfriend, I was pondering what is my purpose in life? Mm. And I came to the conclusion that and this was just a very basic conclusion that my purpose in life is to live it and create more life. Hmm. That that's simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what it all boiled down to for me at 17 years old. And that meant I knew I wanted to be a father sometimes. So I had this, I never had any question whether I wanted to be a father. I knew that certainly from the time that I was 17 years old. I knew that before I knew what kind of career I was going to be in, where I wanted to live or anything else. I knew I wanted to be a father. So when my wife Carmina and I got married, I was 26 and she was 22. And we both knew we wanted to have children. She she was as certain about it as I was. And shortly after we got married, she was diagnosed with endometriosis. And the doctor told her, 
the best way to get rid of this is to get pregnant. We'd only been married a couple months. <laughs> Wait a minute. We were, we wanted to do this, but not yet. Yeah. You know, we want to have a little time to, I mean, we, we got married in less than a year after we met each other. And so, you know, we were planning to have some time before having children, but the doctor also told her, if you don't do it now, you might never have children. So mm-hmm. that's what it came down to. And I remember her saying, well, I'm ready to do this. What about you? And I had to really think about it. And finally, she just said, you know, I know this is not easy, but this clock is ticking now and you have to decide, do you want to have children or not? And so one day I just went up on a hillside behind our house and I just made the decision said, okay, let's do it. So our first child, Kelly, was born just one month after our first anniversary, wedding anniversary. And uh, that was less than two years of meeting each other. So I was, I was in it. <laughs> but the other thing that I knew from um, my um, friendships and experiences is that I really wanted to be an active father. I wanted to share child raising and child care equally. I didn't want it to just all be on my woman. And we both had this, Carmina and I had this ideal of equally sharing everything in terms of housework, childcare, all of that. And that meant that, you know, I was changing diapers, getting up in the middle of the night to feed the baby. And <laughs> Carmen had to confront me a couple of times because I didn't realize what equal really meant <laughs> in terms of doing all this stuff, you know, and then losing sleep, even though I'm working and, and, uh, you know, having to take more time out of my life than I had, you know, anticipated. So that was a big adjustment. We were still adjusting to marriage and, and now adjusting to taking care of this little being and being there a lot. I mean, in the, in the very beginning, um, Carmina was on maternity leave and I was going to work. So she was doing more of it. But also when she went to work, it became even more equal. And, and so, yeah, that was a huge job. But the reward was that I had the experience of being present to my child from the beginning. That was a reward for me and both my daughters that that being present was a huge gift to myself. And all the hard work and all the energy that I put into it has just, it's been reaping rewards ever since the beginning. Mm. it, It helped me to develop a bond with both my children that I think a lot of fathers don't have because they don't, they haven't done what I did. And it's just been really wonderful to have that experience. Yeah. You do have a very special relationship with both your daughters, a unique relationship with each one too, I would say. And I I would agree that it's not something that every father gets to have, or or maybe it hasn't chosen for himself in the way that you did. It's beautiful to watch, beautiful to be, to be a witness to, and, and also very inspirational for me to see the type of father you've been for them. Mm, So what would you say that daughters need, I don't know if maybe needs not the word, but it's the one that comes to mind. What do daughters need from a father? Well, they need a distinctive male presence just as sons need. But of course, a son absorbs it differently than a daughter would. One of the things that daughters know, and this is, this comes from John O'Donoghue and it's just beautiful in his uh, book entitled Beauty. He talks about how when a daughter is born, she lives inside her mother and then she's born And she knows her whole life, looking at her mother, this is what I must become. Hmm. The mother is the model for who she is. 
She's been inside that mother. So she knows in a very visceral way Hmm. what she must become. A son is also born of a mother, but he's never inside his father's body. So there's always this distance that has to be bridged constantly. And it takes effort on both the father and the son. So going back to what does a daughter need, she's got this visceral connection to her mother, whoever her mother is. And she, she just knows on a very basic gut level what it is that she needs to become. So what she needs from her father is that sense of the other gender. Who is he? What's he like? Is he cruel? Is, is he abusive? Does he hurt me? And or is he loving, affectionate? Does he know how to understand me, to respect me for who I am? For a girl, this is so important to get it from her father as well as her mother, because that gives her an idea of what is possible in a relationship with a man. Yeah. And, and, and really what to look for. And I think it's probably no accident that both my daughters got married in their 30s <laughs> for, the, for the first time because they were waiting to find that man. <laughs> Thank God you came along <laughs> who had all those qualities of being respectful and loving and affectionate and was willing to see her for the individual human being that she was, not just a sex object. And I think that's that's a very important thing for girls to get from their fathers. Yeah. And, and I don't have the fortune of being a father to a daughter yet. And I don't know if I will, but one of the lessons or advice that I've received over the years is that a father's role to a daughter is to be the man that she will one day marry. And obviously that's a very simple, again, broad stroke, but I think it kind of captures exactly what you said that, you know, daughters are constantly looking to their fathers as, as the, um, the model for men and and not even maybe just their intimate partner, but the men that they surround themselves with. Sure. And All daughters do that regardless of what father they have. Mm -hmm. So this is where a lot of daughters run into trouble. If, you know, if they have a a father who's an alcoholic and abusive and treats their mother like shit, unfortunately, that may be what they gravitate toward Yeah, in some form or another, you know. And I know being a father, even a father to a son, just a parent in general, was really empowering to recognize how everything that I'm doing is influencing that little guy. Well, even if he doesn't mm-hmm. see it, he feels it. And, oh, yeah. and he, he interprets. He's, he's absorbing all. everything. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was if, at first when I realized that, I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> like, uh, what about yeah. the things that I'm doing that I'm not so proud of or the things that I'm still working on? And then I also realized that, well, that can be a point of inspiration, a check-in point for me. Would I be doing this if he was watching? Would I be doing this if I knew he would do the same thing one day? Uh, when he becomes a man. I think that's that's one of the reasons you hear this phrase, the boy is father to the man. Mm. And because our sons, if we have them, can, you know, and daughters too, can make us aware of that and help us to grow into being a man. I, I think for me, there's no question at all that being a father has been one of the most important factors in my reaching toward manhood. Mm. If I didn't have those children, I wouldn't have as much inspiration or desire to step into that role of being a man. Yeah. I mean, parenthood in general, whether you're a man or a woman just presents all of your edges, all of your, your growth edges. It's, it does. Yeah. it's like the, yeah. it's, a, it's for me, at least it's been the most powerful growth and development transformational opportunity I've ever had in my life up to now. Uh huh. I think for me too. And I, I think it's also the most difficult job you can have is to be a parent. Yeah. 
Absolutely. It's an important one and maybe, and not everybody's cut out for it too. Um, so in recognizing That's if true. you're really ready yeah. for it is, is a question I invite men to consider before they do. Yeah, that. sure. And for those men who decide they're not cut out for it or don't want to choose it, I think that's perfectly fine. And there's so many other ways to be an uncle, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's a very important job too. My brother is not a father, but he's, I think the best uncle in the world. I mean, he's done so many amazing things to be an uncle to my kids and his other niece and nephew. And so there are other opportunities and it doesn't even have to be blood relatives. You know, there's all kinds of ways of being an uncle and that's right. Yeah. There's, there's plenty of young men and women out there who need uncles, aunties, mentorship from, from elder folks who, you know, even if they're not your blood kin, then, you know, you could still be showing up and being of service in that way. So, so parenthood has been definitely one of the most challenging responsibilities in my life. And it sounds like for you too, how is grandparenthood different? Cause <laughs> now you're, you know, you've got uh, our son, your grandson, Sitka. He's, I love yeah. watching the relationship you have with him. And so how has grandfatherhood been different than fatherhood? Well, first I'd like to talk about what's similar. Sure. And what I've found is that my experience of being a parent has taught me how to be a grandparent, first of all. I mean, when Sitka was first born, I came at least once a week and had him sleeping on my chest. I was seeing him and being with him uh, and being present to him in the same way that I was with my daughters when they were little. And also taking full charge of him during that time wasn't equal, of course, because I'm not as involved, but changing diapers, feeding him, taking care of him, putting him down for his nap, all those things have helped me to develop a bond with him just in the same way that I did with my daughters. So the experience of being a parent has informed that. I feel like that's really paying off because he and I have a great bond, I believe. Mm -hmm. And the differences are, well, the differences are mostly a gift because I don't have to be in charge of him as much as I have to be in charge of my children. (laughs) So I can really enjoy him more. And I, you know, I, I probably am more structured than some grandparents with him because when I'm in charge of him, I am in charge and I have to make sure that he's, you know, safe and okay and fed and all that. But I can really just enjoy him and not have to feel like I'm totally responsible for everything about how he comes out. That's your job. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, you're not doing it alone. You have, it's not all your your job alone, but you and you and Carrie have the biggest responsibility there. And so it's more enjoyment and less responsibility. <laughs> that's, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. And, and one of the things that I've, I've loved most about your relationship to him is that you, you really honor where he's at. And it's, it's, it's informed a lot about me and how I want to show up as a parent because he, he responds to you more than, more, more than most people in his life, because I think it's just the way that you show up and, and respect his, his uh, mm-hmm. leading his own path and, and you keep him safe along the way. It's not like yeah. he's, you know, walk, walking on glass when you're around, <laughs> but. Well, that's, that's another thing that's fun about being a grandparent is that since he was born, I have just been curious about what he wants and who he's becoming. So my curiosity leads me to not want to structure him too much, but to see what he, what is unfolding in him. That's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. And, and that alone, I think is, is one thing that I'm still learning and I would pass along to any parent, current or prospective parent that, you know, that are, these little kids, they come in with so much wisdom and determination to become who they're meant to be. 
And it's very easy to get in the way of that if we put ourselves first, going all the way back to what you said about the boy and the man. If, if we're right. still living in that self-reference, me first mentality, then I will, I will box out Sitka and, and box him away from what he wants out of my own interest uh -huh. if I'm not paying attention. Yeah, there's a poem that has to do with father whose one life is not enough. And that kind of implies that he's having his son live out the things that he wanted but didn't get in some way. Mm. That's the father's destiny, not the son's. But so many fathers you know, have chosen for their son a destiny that they felt they were denied. Mm. And mothers too, who have this ideal vision of this is going to be the perfect man I'm going to create here. You know, <laughs> and I have an exact idea of what it is and how it's going to be. And it may have nothing to do with what this little person's destiny is. So I think what you're saying is really true. We really have to kind of look for and search out and try to discern what is this little person's destiny? What, what are they reaching toward? Because it, they came into the world with it and it's unfolding right before our eyes and we can foster it and we can encourage it, but we can also really get in the way of it too. Mm, mm. Agreed. That's, that's a beautiful pearl right there. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and it's, it, this has been such an amazing conversation. I know that when you and I get to talking, we can go on and on. <laughs> but uh, yeah. uh, and it's been it's been nice because we have it's been a little while since we've been able to really dig in like this. So I'm glad we had this yeah. opportunity. Yeah, it's so enjoyable to have this with you. Likewise. And so as we start to put a close on at least this conversation, I wanted to ask you a few special questions about fatherhood, as this is again Father's okay. Fatherhood Month. Um, the first one is, what was one thing you were not prepared for when you became a father? I think it was what I was referring to earlier, what it really meant to be an equal partner in taking care of a child. It was a much bigger job than I anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> I just, and there's no way anybody could have told me. Because first of all, I wasn't doing it the way my father did or most of my friends' fathers did it either. Mm -hmm. You know, Our fathers just you know, went to work and brought home the paycheck. You know? And, and uh, so I was taking on something that I had no example or, or model for. And so it was, that was a big surprise how much work it really was. Yeah. And, and regardless of the type of father you're choosing to be, not, nobody prepares you for parenthood, at least as far as like, there's no parent training no. camp that's going to prepare you for what comes. No, before we made that decision to get pregnant, some good friends of ours came over and they had a two-year-old daughter. And, and I said to a man, I said, you know, I just don't know if I'm ready. And he goes, you know what? You're never ready. You're never going to be ready. There's no way you can be prepared for this. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. And, and in that way, it's actually, um, you know, we didn't talk about this in this conversation, but I know you and I both share the terminology of rite of passage. And that's, that's kind of a cool way of looking at it as fatherhood is a rite of passage because yeah. you can't really prepare for a rite of passage. It's one of those things that's like you step into and whoever you've become up to that point, you show up with and then you can choose after that. Yeah. And and being a father truly is an initiation. It really is, if you allow it to be. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. That'll be our, a topic for our next conversation on the show. Okay. <laughs> Fatherhood is a rite of passage. I love that. Um, okay, so then what is uh, the greatest lesson you've learned in fatherhood as a father? The value of being present. It's It just cannot be overestimated. It's just so important and so valuable for both the father and the child, that presence, just being together. I mean, it's what makes a good relationship is being together. Yeah. And that's, and that's also one of those things that you, you can't go back and do over again, you know? No, you can't, you know, time goes on and you have your chance and you 
take it or you don't every day. (laughs) Every day is a choice. It's It's an everyday choice. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, Last one here. What is one piece of advice you would give to all of the fathers out there? You know, that equal thing that I was talking about in the beginning, Carmina and I were kind of keeping score. And if you're keeping score, it's just not going to work. So to know that whatever you give is going to come back to you in a good way, in some way. So it's not like you're giving yourself away. It can feel like that sometimes like, Oh, I'm sitting here with this toddler and it's really not that interesting right now. Uh, (laughs) I, I could use some adult time and I know mothers feel that a lot, especially mothers who spend a greater time with their children, but that what you're giving is it's like an investment you could say, or it's something that is a seed that grows. Be aware of that, that in the hard times when you're dealing with a crying baby or changing a diaper or having to miss something that you'd really like to be involved in because you're a father and you have to be with your child. Just remember that this is going to come back to you in really good ways that you can't even imagine right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are those are wonderful words to pass along. Thank you for that. And then one last one. This is this is not as father oriented, um, but what is one thing you have learned in your life that you wish you knew when you were eighteen? What women are really like. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, man. <laughs> Me too. As opposed to my fantasies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would that would be the you know the real piece of gold. You know, if you could somehow. I mean, you could tell an 18 year old, but they're not going to know it until they actually experience it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's one of those. The ex- only the experiential wisdom matters. <laughs> and I can't, e- I can't even put it into words what women are really like because that's such a broad question. But that's that would be one thing that would have been really wonderful to know. <laughs> yes, they are. They are beautiful and elaborate creatures. <laughs> they are <laughs> many dimensions and many layers. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, excellent. Well, um, before we wrap up here, I also want to give you an opportunity to tell everybody where they can follow you, where where they can uh, find out more about your work, um, your offerings, your workshops, retreats, everything. So um, hit us with it. Sure. Well, I have a, a website that's mainly for my psychotherapy practice, and that is uh, TomMcGee.com. T-O-M-M-C-G-E-E.com. And that has some information about me and, and my work. And it also has some stuff about my men's work. Then there's another website called Men's Healing Work that I share with Richard Palmer. And this is the work that Richard and I have been doing for the last several years together. And it has information about our retreats it has information it has a connection to a blog that we every once in a while write something for and yeah some other stuff about men's work then there's also on facebook we have a new facebook group called uh, voyage into masculine soul community voyage into masculine soul community and that's a facebook group that you can join. It's it's for men. We haven't had any women ask to join yet, but I, it's really it's really meant to be more like kind of like a virtual men's group. So it, it really is for men, and that has um, just sharings of 
from men about what they're going through. And for therapists, I'm also part of a couple of other Facebook groups. There's the Ventura County Mental Health Professional uh, Facebook group and the therapist community, which is a broader Los Angeles area. Excellent. And all of the links for what you're sharing here will be in the show notes so people have access to those resources. And uh, you also, you have the Love in This World retreat coming up in July. You want to tell us a little bit about that and how they can get involved? Yeah. Yeah, sure. That can be found on both of my websites, the TomMcGee.com and uh, Men's Healing Work. If you go to events on either of those pages, you'll find it there. And if you want to get more information about those retreats, you just click on the link and it'll take you to it. That retreat, uh, Love in This World, is going to be uh, July 20th to 22nd in Somas, California, which is in Ventura County. And every year we do this this retreat. It's a, we do it every summer. And there's it's always titled love in this world and then a theme and we've had various different themes this year our theme is vulnerability love and vulnerability which we're really excited about and it's one of the reasons that uh richard and i are reading the Brene brown work right now because vulnerability and shame go so much together often and so we always love to have new men this retreat is we're in our 13th year and there have been a certain men that come to it uh, every year, but um, we always have new men join us and we're always excited about that. Excellent. Yeah. Anybody who has not had the pleasure of experiencing Tom and Richard's work, it's, it's, it's very unique and very special and has made a profound impact on my life. Just especially being in close proximity to both you and Richard uh, has really made an impact on me. So I really encourage anyone who can make that happen, head out there and, and support these guys in the work they're doing and, and also get a healthy dose of some rich masculine energy and wisdom for yourself to bring back to you. Yeah. We have a lot of fun too. It's <laughs> not just all hard work. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's the full spectrum of the masculine experience. So definitely check that out. Tom, just want to say how grateful I am to have had you on this show. It's, it's part of my vision come true is bringing the bridge between your generation and our generation and the next generation in this work and also just how grateful I am to have been married into and welcomed into a family and a father-in-law as yourself. I don't think I could have designed you or authored you better for my spirit in this journey in my life. <laughs> well, the same goes here. It feels like you're the son that I always wanted. So. <laughs> uh, we'll just have continue that love fest. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, enjoy the rest of your day and thank you for being on the show, Tom. You know, the biggest honor in recording this episode was being able to bring my father-in-law, whom I love and respect the crap out of, to the forefront, to give him a platform to share his wisdom and his brilliance. I mean, this man has been in the work longer than most of us have been alive. <laughs> most of you guys listening to this show have not been alive as long as Tom has been doing this for. And he's so humble in the way he presents what he's learned. And he's also so curious. That's one thing I've always respected about Tom is he stays curious curious in every one of his relationships. He doesn't come from a place of knowing. And of course, he's human like all of us, but he he really has been an incredible model of what I in, am developing my identity as a man. You know, however, however you guys want to interpret that. He, he is a role model for me and also just pleased to be sharing this space of men's healing work with him and, and kind of bridging the gap between his generation, our generation, and the next generation. So 
Hope you guys had a lot to take away from that episode. I want to hear about it. Make sure you shoot me some comments. If you listen to this episode and it struck a chord with you deeply and you listen to the top of the show and I was calling you out because you're the guy who's doing it by himself, doesn't have any resources, doesn't have a men's team, doesn't have a men's circle. Maybe you join the Facebook group, but you're not really participating. I want you to stop and send me a message, okay? I really mean it. I want you to send me a message on Facebook or email jettyazuma at gmail.com. I guarantee you that if you're facing a block in your life and you just don't know how to overcome it, there's one step that will lead you to fulfillment for the rest of your life. And just figuring out what that very next step is, is all you have to do right now. So reach out to me. Let me support you with that. Check out the show notes for links and resources at therisingmanpodcast.com. Whatever app you're using to listen to this podcast or wherever you're listening to it, subscribe there, leave a review, snap a screenshot, send it to me. I am compiling all of you guys who have left comments, reviews, loved up on the episodes, shared up these episodes. It's not going unnoticed, you guys. Send those screenshots over to me at therisingmanpodcast at gmail.com because, like I said, there is a very special opportunity brewing, and I'm putting it together right now, and the list just keeps growing. I'm excited to bring it to you guys. It's going to drop here in the next week or so. Okay, so send those over to me. You'll be hearing from me, hearing all about what I'm cooking up behind the scenes for you guys. And as I always mention, this is how you can support another man that you don't even know. Your review might be the one that a man reads that leads him to this show, that leads him to taking a massive change, a big, bold move on behalf of himself in his life. So think about it like that. It's not always about you. I mean, it takes three minutes, but it could do so much for someone in their life. Join the Rising Man Facebook community, guys. If you haven't already, facebook.com slash group slash the rising man. If you're already in there, bring a brother in, bring a friend in. Let's grow this thing. Let's get this out all over the world. Remember, millions of men are still out there and have no idea what we're talking about. So we got a lot of work to do. So make sure you check that out, the Rising Man Facebook group. Check us out on Instagram at the Rising Man Pod or at Jetty Azuma. That's my personal Instagram page. Shout out to Sean Offenbach over at Infinite Melodics. That's Melodics with an X. He's the man with the plan. I'm telling you guys, if you guys have any kind of podcast ambitions or audio engineering needs, he's your guy. And his schedule is filling up very quickly. Trust me, I've been trying to, <laughs> I'm having a harder time getting this man on the hook. But no, in, in all seriousness, Sean is always a professional. He's always crushing it out there. I love what you do, Sean. You make these episodes everything that they are, man. Keep doing you and everybody out there. Make sure you go give him some love at Infinite Melodics. And until next time, rise up and claim your destiny. <laughs>